So as we are now shifting to prepare to hear scripture and today's message, um, I just want to introduce this very familiar scripture this morning from 1 Corinthians. I think so many of us turn to this as one of the fundamental pieces of being a Christian. So I just ask, as you listen to it today, this beautiful poetry that's going to take us into Rachel's message, just think about who it was that taught us to love and what that love really means for us all. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Holy wisdom, holy word. Good morning. Um, For those of you who don't uh, know me, uh, I've been very privileged to step into the position of the Director of Family Ministries here. Um, And I am looking forward to sharing a bit more about what family ministries uh, mean and look like here at Aldersgate. Um, But first I wanted to start with a little story about my life um, and sort of how different words can mean different things to all of us One of those words, I think, is family. Family means a lot of different things to different people, um, which we heard a little about with Caitlin, and she just stole my thunder, but that's okay. Uh, But another word that actually means something really different to me, at least it used to, than probably to a lot of people in church, is actually a name. It's the name Jesus. Um, I did not grow up in a Christian family. Um, We didn't go to church. My exposure to church and to the name Jesus mainly came through times when I would go to VBS with friends um, or just really, really small instances of, of hearing. But mainly what I learned about Jesus came from news stories I would hear about um, churches trying to gather more money or do inappropriate things in the name of Jesus. And it came from being a teenager in Seattle and having people try to give me tracts that would tell me I was going to hell because I didn't believe in Jesus. So for me, Jesus was not a positive, cheerful association. Jesus meant uh, this sort of comical children's character who had been twisted and used um, for evil purposes. And even when I became a Christian at the age of 15, I still was really uncomfortable with the name Jesus. Um, I, I would pray to Christ or to God because I knew that that Jesus was not who I had perceived in my childhood, but I was just not comfortable with that name. And it really wasn't until five years later when I was studying theology at Seattle Pacific that I shifted my understanding of that name and was able to use it comfortably. Um, and it's interesting because that's about the same time I started dating my husband And he was very shocked when I shared that because he grew up in a Christian family. For him, the name Jesus was really comfortable and positive. So he and I had a very different interpretation or understanding of what that name means. Um, 
So family is like that. We probably all come in here and have a different mental image when I say the word family. Uh, And interestingly enough, our culture is really redefining what family means as well. Um, There's a really interesting book that's just been written. It's called The End of the Suburbs by Lee Gallagher. And in it, she talks about how the suburbs really have more baby boomers and less of the stereotypical young families we would think of. She says, people see that they want a different kind of lifestyle maybe than they grew up in or they bought into. A lot of people who bought into the suburbs are realizing it's not really delivering on what it promised. And then she goes on to explain, people want to be in communities that are livelier, where they can get to know their neighbors more. And so there's more demand for urban suburbs. I think the idea behind this is that the suburbs were built after World War II primarily as people were coming home from the war and they needed housing and they wanted to give their kids this this wonderful life. And the interstate freeways were being built so it was easier to live in a suburb and work in the cities. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because of, uh, I'm sure a lot of you are really familiar with this um, this part of our history. But as we, as we went through this um, time, people brought into the suburbs their sense of community, that sense of camaraderie that they brought out of growing up in the Great Depression. My grandmother um, lived in West Seattle during the Depression and then, and then surviving through World War II. They brought their sense of community into the suburbs And now, several generations later, we're seeing that the suburbs don't have that sense of community. And young families are leaving because they want a place of community, and they're finding that in in not necessarily high-rise apartments in downtown, but in these um, townhomes or houses built around like a common park area with shared workshop spaces and shared garages, these these spaces that allow people to create a sense of family with those who live near them. So that's a big shift in our culture as people are leaving the suburbs. It's a, it's a huge change in, in how we are doing life. Um, another interesting idea about family comes from Jesus and a great story from Luke 2. Um, it says, Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, as usual, for the festival. When the festival was ended, they started to return, and they started to return. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their friends and relatives. Um... If you're the parent of a preteen, it might not seem shocking that his parents would walk off for a whole day without looking for him. Uh, but I think a lot of people read this story and seem perplexed how Jesus' parents could go for an entire day and not realize their 12-year-old son was missing. Um, but what this story really illustrates to us is what family meant to Jesus. For Jesus' family was not his mom and dad and their children For Jesus, in this time and this place, family was the group that he lived with every day, that he interacted with, the people that were a part of his life and his community, not just the people that he was related to by blood. I think it's really time for the church, for our church, for all churches, to redefine what family means.
because this limited idea that a family is a mom and a dad and their kids living in a house together is not a healthy one, and it's not what humanity has experienced for thousands of years. For thousands of years, family has been a diverse group of people that nurture each other, that support and pray for each other. I grew up in a huge family, um, and my mom is here today, which makes me very happy. Um, But my mom has five brothers, so I had lots of aunts and uncles, uh, excuse me, four brothers. I have lots of aunts and uncles and lots of cousins. And then I have five siblings whom I'm very close to, so I have lots of nieces and nephews now. Uh, My kids have lots of cousins it's just this big chaotic family, um, and there was a there was a particular time. Our family gatherings are never dull, um, even before we had kids. My uh, my husband and I, after we got married nine years ago, we came back from our honeymoon and we had kind of a second reception just for our like our close family and friends. Um, and I was walking through the kitchen in my brother's house, and I overheard my two uncles discussing these new windmills they were putting up to generate wind power and whether if we built enough of them, we would actually throw off the rotation of the earth. (laughs) (laughs) We never want for entertainment in our family, um, but we never wanted for direction and connection and fellowship. My grandparents bought 20 acres of land uh, right outside of Auburn, this beautiful view across the valley of Mount Rainier. And um, they gave five acres to my parents and five acres to one of my uncles. And so I grew up being able to walk to my cousin's house and to my grandparents' house and spend time with them. Um, And, of course, our family has troubles like any other family. but, But we've always been there for each other, and I think that's why I'm so close to my siblings now even though we're very diverse. I think that really hits on something that our society has moved away from, and that is these intergenerational relationships where young people are learning. They're learning social skills. They're learning practical skills, a trade, or their work skills. They're learning um, their faith values and their moral code from their grandparents and their parents and their aunts and uncles and the other adults in the community around them, we've moved away from this sort of vertical transmission of faith and information into a horizontal transmission where people spend a great deal of time with their peers. Um, and we could go into that as a whole other sermon, but... You know, a lot of that comes out of the Industrial Revolution and out of now the information age is making it so much easier for people to connect only with their peer group and not form these imperative connections with older and younger generations. Um, So I think the biggest problem with this peer orientation issue where people are spending time with and, and learning from their peers rather than other generations, there's two problems. One is it robs our older generations of the chance to nurture and invest in young people. And I'm not just talking about people who are in their 80s and 90s. I'm talking about people in their 40s and 50s who might have older kids and are ready to start helping the parents of younger families, people who are grandparent age who may not be living near their grandchildren and don't have the joy of being with them, and and people who are 80 years old and 90 years old and are not able to have a family lovingly surrounding them 
and respecting them and the wisdom they have to share. The other place that's really damaging, too, is is to young people. Uh, Rather than coming up into a family and a community where they can grow and learn things and create a true sense of identity grounded not in just who their family is, but in who they are called to be by God, children are not growing up to realize that they are free. They are free to be who God calls them to be. They're growing up to think they need to be who their peers are because that's where they find their sense of affirmation and self-worth. And that is one of the reasons I believe that we're seeing a huge increase in the last few decades in adolescent and even child uh, depression in suicides. A lot of the problems we're having with youth violence that were completely foreign to us 50 years ago stem from this shift where people are peer-oriented And it doesn't just happen to kids. If I have a parenting problem, I'm likely to call one of my friends or one of my siblings first. I forget to call my wonderful, wise mother or my grandmother and get their perspective on it. We've lost something there. There's a a pop singer that some of you may have heard of. He's very popular. His name is Jason Mraz. I want to read to you two lines of one of his songs. It's called I'm Yours. He says, listen to the music of the moment. People dance and sing. We're just one big family. And it's our God-forsaken right to be loved, loved, loved. You're laughing, right? Because you grew up realizing, you grew up realizing and knowing that we are created in the image of a God who lives in community. And our, our need to dance and sing as a family stems from who God created us to be, but the world doesn't know that, and it's not their fault. We as the church have failed our society. We failed the culture around us to communicate to them the value of living in family and what the family means to us as a church, what it means to be in a church family, and what it means for the church to impact the world around us. So how do we actually do this? That's always the hard part. It's always nice to come hear a sermon and think you're going to do something different or think, oh, I'm so excited to be a part of a church that is, you know, thinking this way. But how do we actually change things? I think the first and most important place to start is with Christ as our foundation. And if you want to put up my first slide, um, when we have Christ at the center of who we are, We will live in community when we really understand what that means. So here's a a little diagram of Christ in the center, and then there's the little white dots to represent people. Some people are really close to who Jesus is and understand that well, and some people are a lot further away. And then somewhere along the lines, um, the church has to decide on how we are going to function, and that's what that black circle is. It's sort of the the walls or the regulations or the rules about how we're going to be a church. And I want to take a moment to say something about about the church and the structure of the church. I have gone to a lot of different churches. I've gone to non-denominational churches. I've worked in a Lutheran church. I've been inspired and grown from all of those places. I particularly chose the United Methodist Church to pursue ordination because I have a deep value for the traditions 
and a deep respect for the need for structure. The United Methodist Church has a very strong structure that keeps us safe from some of those negative things I experienced as a child that made it hard for me to know Jesus. So I love the church, and I am not saying that we should do away with our structure and our guidelines. However, if we go to the next slide, it presents a really different picture of the direction that I think the way the church should see people. Rather than seeing people defined by these arbitrary rules being inside or outside the church, we should be responding to the direction people are moving in relationship to Jesus. So you'll notice if you were to imagine that black circle being back there, some of the people inside of that circle are actually moving away from who Jesus wants them to be. And a lot of the people who are really far outside that circle are moving towards Jesus. But it's hard to recognize that when we view people through the lens of our rules and our expectations. Uh, I think Aldersgate is an exceptionally loving and accepting place, and I have loved being a member here. It's part of the reason I'm so thrilled to work here. Uh, But I think we can always do more, and I think the American church as a whole could certainly do more to respond first to the direction people are going rather than basing it on the rules they've made. So Aldersgate needs to be a place where we create intergenerational relationships in our ministries. And this is one place where really Aldersgate is not doing much better than most churches. Sunday morning is wonderful. This is like being a part of a family, and I love coming here on Sundays. But a lot of our other ministries are very peer-specific, and they're very focused on one age group. And there's not a lot of interaction. I know that that is a place where we can be doing better. Let me give you a few examples of how I could see that really fulfilling some needs. It's August. It's usually when you start to hear someone come up and ask for Sunday school teachers, right? We need Sunday school teachers. Come on. Well, we're going to do a different Sunday school curriculum this year than you're probably used to, and I hope that you will appreciate it, or at least give me your feedback if you don't. Um, But let me paint a picture of how you might have a Sunday school class taught that is different than normal. Imagine that you have an elderly person who has limited mobility, limited energy, maybe has to use a walker or a wheelchair, but they would really love to invest in the children in a Sunday school class. Now imagine, and this is a big leap, but just try, imagine you have a surly 12-year-old who needs somewhere to expend their extra energy. What if you paired them together so that the elderly person can not only share their love with the children, they can share some of their wisdom and sense of service, their sense of community, with that adolescent. And the adolescent, in the meantime, can provide a lot of the busy, energy-consuming work. So as a team, they would make an excellent Sunday school teacher. Another example is our coffee hour. I know Brad mentioned last week, at least in the first service, that we need more people to help with that, and there hasn't been a lot of people signing up and I was just talking with someone this morning about how the kitchen is not being run as well as it used to because some of the people who've done that for years are are getting older or just tired or for whatever reason they're not able to do it anymore. It shouldn't be this core group of people in the church who do everything. 
But what that means is we need to be creative and accepting about who does things. I think the ideal people to be doing coffee hour is, again, those young people, teens, young adults, because not only do they have the energy and the focus to do that well, and it will give them a way to serve in our church, they'll bring a new life to that. They may have ideas for how we can make that more friendly to people their age. So there's two examples of how I could see Aldersgate shifting and some of the ways we do those things. The trick about this is it it can't be something that Brad does or I do or Caitlin does. It has to be something we all think about. So um, if you would put up my next slide, I think this is a really good illustration. Here's Here's some of the different ministries that we have in Aldersgate. Um... And this is just a few. I know we have way too many to list. I think that oftentimes when people hear or think about family ministry is they think about it as being another one of these ministries. Um, And that's I've actually fielded several questions about, oh, can I come to family ministry events? Because we've had these events all summer, right? And a lot of people, mostly who have had theirs, families with young children. Um, If you go to my next slide... Family ministry is not its own separate entity. It's really, it's a ministry that weaves into everything else we do, and it becomes the identity of who we are. So I think that if I could leave you with sort of an action-oriented thought here that you can really take away and think about and maybe put into action, it would be that um, each of us is responsible in the ministry we're part of to find a way to make that friendly for families. And I don't just mean friendly for little kids. I would love to hear more kids in worship service and have them be a part of everything we do. I just mean, where can your ministry create more intergenerational relationships? What steps can you take in whatever ministry you're a part of to make it more engaging and engage people across the generations? You might be wondering right now how all of this ties in with the lovely verses we heard from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. And this is how. um, When I had my first baby, uh, Sam, he's seven now. When I first had him, I knew how to do everything just right, and I had a lot of really good ideas about parenting. And there were a lot of people who didn't agree with me, and they were wrong. And then I realized that the people I really disagreed with about parenting were not the ones who did things differently. Because anyone who parents out of selfless love for their child is a parent I can agree with. The parents who would make foolish choices based on their own laziness or selfishness, I had a hard time seeing eye to eye with. But somebody who did the exact opposite thing of me and it was motivated out of love, that was a parent I could agree with. I think our church is the same. We're all going to have different ideas about how to do ministry and what that looks like. But I know that as long as that is motivated out of the selfless, out of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ and our foundation on who Jesus is, then we will not go wrong. If we are doing ministry here to God's glory, out of sacrificial love for one another, and founded on who Jesus Christ is, We cannot go wrong. Amen.